Um, yeah, a very good morning and a very happy Easter to you all. Today I want to talk to you about the way to maturity. At Easter time, as I scratch around for a Bible passage from which to speak, I always notice that the Gospels seem to labour Good Friday at the expense of Easter itself. And I think this imbalance in the Gospels is often reflected in Easter sermons, especially in churches like ours that don't have a, a specific Good Friday service. Now, Obviously, there is plenty that we could say about Jesus' trial and execution, as the Gospels prove. But it seems foolish to become fixated on those events to the virtual exclusion of his resurrection and ascension. So why do you think the Gospels were actually written with such a heavy bias? It was something that confused me for years. I don't actually think there's any great mystery about it. I certainly don't think that the gospel writers intended us to think and speak and sing more about Jesus' death than we do about his resurrection. The point is, I think, that at the time of writing, there was no reason to doubt that Jesus was alive after the first Easter day. So many people had seen him alive and well after that time. There was no question about it. And certainly when St. Paul penned 1 Corinthians 15, we know that many witnesses were still living to tell the tale. So if anyone at the time disbelieved the resurrection of Jesus, as no doubt many did, it was the fact of his death that they doubted, not the fact of his subsequent life. And that being so, it was a priority for those writing about those events to go into much more detail about Good Friday and the fact that he really did die than about Easter and his return to life which was not in dispute. That's my theory anyway. This morning I want to concentrate on Easter and after. And if you were here last week, you'll remember Carol quoting Philip Yancey's idea that we live not in the pain of Good Friday, nor yet in the joy of Easter Sunday, but in the sort of uncertain hope of the Saturday. And to an Exodus mindset, which is what we've been trying to develop over the last uh, year or so, this is no surprise. Because we are saved, as Jesse memorably put it, not into the promised land. We are saved into the wilderness that leads to the promised land. And if you find that a hard concept to grasp, because it is at odds with what you've heard before, think of John 4 and the story of the woman at the well. If you remember it, the living water that Jesus promised to her was not eternal life in itself. What it was, was water that if you drank it, it would bubble up into a spring that led to eternal life. In the same way in 1 John 12, you know, that famous Christmas reading that starts, uh, in the beginning was the word. In in 1 John 12, we read, not that he made all who received him children of God, but that to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Sunday is coming, but we still live in Saturday. We're going to get to the promised land, but right now we're in the wilderness. So it seems to me important to familiarize ourselves with the instructions that the risen Christ gave on how to drink that living water that bubbles up into eternal life. How to exercise our right to become children of God. So this morning what I want to do is skim read the last two chapters of John's Gospel, concentrating uh, really heavily on the words of Jesus. These are the people that he was speaking to, uh, had dedicated their whole lives to him, and they'd followed him for years. They'd heard him speak hundreds of times, seen him heal thousands of people. 
So these eight short sayings are very much instructions to the mature disciple. This study would probably make a good sermon series, I think. Um, But let's see what we can do with a single talk on the way to maturity. We're going to just skip lightly over the actual story today, but I'll try and fill in the blanks as we go. As most of you know, two days before this, um, this part of the gospel, Jesus was arrested, put before a kangaroo court on trumped-up charges, sentenced to death, and killed. We join the story at John chapter 20, verse 1. Verses 1 to 9 relate how early in the morning Mary went to the tomb and, finding that it had been opened, went and told the disciples. Peter and John then ran to the scene and found the body gone. John himself believed, as verse 8 tells us, but we're not told what Peter thought. Now, after they'd gone, Mary met angels at the tomb who asked why she was weeping. And almost at once she saw Jesus himself, but through her tears and distress she failed to recognize him. And this is point one. Mature believers allow Jesus to question them. It's verse 15. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? I believe these words have a strong resonance for us today in the now and not yet of our Saturday life, our wilderness wanderings. A well-known worship song begins, In these days of doubt and sorrow, we all need a hope to cling to. It always struck me as a bit of a downer, that one. I don't know about you. But I want to suggest today that, in fact, much of our doubt and sorrow is actually misplaced. Like Mary, if we truly recognize the presence and power of our risen Lord and Saviour, we have a lot less to cause to worry and to weep. Now, in our hard times, I think our tendency is to question God. Why, Lord? And in particular, why me, Lord? But like Mary, what we really need is to allow Jesus to question us. Because when God asks us a question, he's not seeking information. He's inviting us to interrogate ourselves, which encourages us in turn to doubt our doubts, and believe our beliefs, rather than the other way around. The two great pastoral questions, it seems to me, are one that God asked Adam back in the Garden of Eden, where are you? And one that Jesus often asked people who came to him for help, what do you want? And the two questions he asked Mary here are actually variations on the theme, if you notice. Why are you weeping? Where are you? And what are you looking for? What do you want? Too often, I think, we get knocked off course by just the stuff of life, what Hamlet calls the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. We find ourselves thrown into turmoil by worry or negativity or guilt. And when that happens, what we need most is probably just to allow Jesus to ask us where we are and what it is we want, why we're sad, and who it is we're looking for. It can be very helpful to stop and take stock of where we are at any given time, and how we got there. But the second question is often the crucial one. Who are we looking for? Are we self-seeking? Are we perhaps seeking someone else to love or follow? Or like Mary, are we genuinely Jesus-seekers? Of course, we'd be better off seeking Jesus, because there's really no future in anything else. But even if we are, 
life is often still painful for us. And when our tears blind us, we sometimes fail to recognize Jesus, even though he's standing right beside us. Distraught as she is, Mary remembers that they had buried the body in some haste on Friday night, so perhaps there was a problem about the tomb. And who but a gardener would be up and about at so early in the morning? So it's quite logical to ask this chap that she can't see through her tears whether he has moved the body. And that's when he calls her by name. Point two. Mature believers are intimate friends of Jesus. This is verses 16 and 17. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. In verse 15, he affirmed her as a woman, and now he affirms her as a friend, as he calls her by her name. The simplicity and intimacy of this meeting is quite remarkable when we remember that one of the people concerned has just won a unique world-changing, history-changing victory over sin and death. Even though the victorious Jesus has not yet ascended to his father, he makes time to meet with Mary. And we might ask ourselves, why? Why her? Why not Peter and John? He could just as easily have bumped into them, but he chose her. Perhaps they needed to operate by faith, not by sight, in some way that she really didn't. Or was this one of Jesus' many uh, sort of feminist choices in that male-dominated society? Or was it perhaps just because she was weeping? We know that Jesus was often motivated by compassion. And I believe he's always present with the suffering. So I think it would be perfectly in character if the newly risen Lord of all things delayed his departure to celebrate with his father simply to comfort his friend. But there's also a great intimacy, verse 17, in his message message to the disciples. My father and your father, my God and your God. Despite the recent events and his great victory, he still relates to God exactly as he always did, as God and as father. And he puts us squarely on the very same footing as his brothers. The wilderness wanderer on the way to maturity can pick up some useful points from this short passage. Firstly, we need to allow Jesus close enough to call us by our name. Then we should acknowledge him as our teacher, as she does, which means continually learning from him. Thirdly, you know, of course, there is a place for clinging to Jesus, but we need to accept that sometimes he will remove himself from our conscious presence for purposes of his own. Now, it's not that he's forsaken us at those times. It's just that he's doing something else. It's not a time for us to be clinging to him, feeding our own emotional needs. It's a time for us to put God first, as Jesus always does. And finally, we have to learn to regard ourselves as very literally the brothers and sisters of Jesus. In short, we are to become intimate friends with the Lord of all things. Point three, mature believers are seekers of Jesus' peace and of his spirit. Verses 19 to 23. In verse 19, we read that later that day, behind locked doors, for fear of the Jews, suddenly Jesus appears in the room with the disciples. 
Well, if someone's already afraid and you jump out of them with a loud cry of, peace be with you, I wonder how peaceful they really feel. I, I think they probably jumped out of their skins. But then he showed them his pierced hands and the big hole in his side. And at that moment, they realized that it really was him. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, I think he probably had to, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. I think a very great deal is lost in the translation of that repeated greeting, peace. We tend to think of peace, don't we, as either personal tranquility or political absence of war. But the Jewish greeting, shalom, is far more than that. It encompasses peace with God, peace with our fellow man, peace with the whole world, and even peace with ourselves, the whole created order, and us. Now, these are the men that Jesus chose to change the world. And at this first meeting after he rose from the dead, the very first thing he he blesses them with is peace. Peace be with you. And they're going to need that supernatural peace because Jesus now sends them out exactly as the Father sent him. And they've just seen two days before what that leads to. Most, if not all of them, would end up dying for their faith. But for them, as for Jesus... The death of the body was not the end. And the same is true for us. They knew that they too would rise from the dead. Now I think we need to take verse 22 as a a blessing and a commandment, not as an actual impartation of the Holy Spirit. The impartation comes later at Pentecost. But it is surely significant that as Jesus gives this blessing, he makes a point of breathing on them. As with the uh, Hebrew word ruach, which I'm probably mispronouncing and butchering terribly, so with the Greek pneuma, which I've equally butchered, the same word means wind, breath, spirit. It means all three, wind, breath, spirit. So the significance of his breathing out on them, as he says, receive the Holy Spirit, is absolutely plain. And a quick theological red herring for you. God's church is currently divided over what is called the filioque clause in the creed. The issue of whether the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son or just from the Father. Personally, I'm not terribly bothered as long as he comes. But I do respect those who are. But in this verse, Jesus clearly identifies his own exhalation with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit about whom he's had so much to say a few chapters back in his Last Supper address, chapters 14 to 16, is to be seen as his very breath. The exact meaning of verse 23 is controversial, and I'm not going to go there. But what's not controversial is that if we are acting in accordance with the Holy Spirit, it wouldn't occur to us not to forgive the sins of others. In the light of sayings of Jesus like, judge not that you be not judged, to put it in the old-fashioned language, Matthew 7 verse 1, it doesn't seem possible that Jesus meant we are to go around deciding who gets forgiven and who doesn't. Certainly not our job. Rather, our job is to get our forgiveness in line with his, in line with the heart of God, and in line with what's happening in heaven. A very quick rehearsal of the Lord's Prayer will tell you how that works out in practice. Point four, mature believers expect signs and wonders, verses 24 to 29. 
In verses 24 and 25, we read the story of the man who often gets called Doubting Thomas. He missed out on the whole of the above meeting and said he's never going to believe it unless he gets to stick his finger in the holes in Jesus' hand. That's gross, really, isn't it? And stick his hand in the hole in his side, the spear wound, you know. Oh, lovely. Butcher shop imagery. Eight days later, he's with the others when Jesus once again appears in their locked room and again wishes them peace. wonder if anyone dares say, stop doing that. You scared the life out of me. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and stick it in my side. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Well, this is a room full of people, but Jesus goes straight for Thomas and meets him where he is. He hasn't got a problem with Thomas wanting to put his finger in the nail holes if he wants to, or his hand into the gaping spear wound in his side. But in fact, Thomas instantly responds, my Lord and my God. And in that, he is displaying exactly the same level of faith as all the other disciples. Matthew 16, 11 and 13 tell us, not one of them believed Mary's tale until they saw him for themselves. So poor old doubting Thomas deserves the name no more than Doubting Peter or Doubting James or Doubting anyone else. Thomas thought he would need to touch Jesus' wounds in order to believe it was really him. But in the event, seeing was believing. I've often heard what I think is a a misinterpretation of Jesus' blessing on those who have not seen and yet believe. It's sometimes presented as naughty Thomas missing out on the blessing because he wanted to see for himself. In fact, I think the message of this passage is the opposite. There's nothing wrong with wanting to see some evidence for ourselves when everyone else is just saying, trust me. I don't really like it when people say, trust me. It makes me distrust them. (laughs) But it seems to me there's something badly wrong with the common interpretation of the principle that we find in 2 Corinthians 5-7, that we walk by faith, not by sight. We're not expected to just believe just because somebody else says so. If we put 2 Corinthians 5, 7 in its context, we see that Paul is actually reasoning from the opposite position. That we find ourselves constantly encouraged by the down payment, i.e. what we've received so far, of the Holy Spirit. It's very clear from Paul's writings in general that he doesn't regard the presence of the Holy Spirit as some intangible something that somehow gives us faith. But as a very evident presence, full of obvious demonstrations of God's power. So what the verse actually means is not blind faith at all. It specifically means living by faith in Jesus rather than by seeing Jesus. And it's easy to do because we have this down payment of the Spirit. Jesus' earthly ministry was one of teaching and doing miracles, talking about the kingdom of God, demonstrating the kingdom of God. And if he's the unchanging God, then it makes no sense to think that he suddenly wants to operate any differently now that he's ascended to the Father. If anything, we need to be more like doubting Thomas, not less like him. We should expect Jesus to make his presence and power manifest in our daily lives. Point five. I promise you it's going to go faster as we go on. Point five. Mature believers feed on obedience, chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. 
In chapter 21, we aren't told how many days later this happens, but it seems they've now returned to Galilee, and Peter is bored. He suddenly says, oh, I'm going fishing. And everyone else must be bored too, because they say, oh, I'll tell you what, I'll come with you. They jump in the boat with him. And they fish all night long and catch nothing. Then at dawn, Jesus calls to them from the bank and says, you got any fish? (laughs) Have you got any? You haven't, have you? You've got no fish. And then for at least three of them, there's a distinct sense of deja vu because Jesus repeats exactly the same miracle he did when he first called them. Exactly the same situation. Peter, James, and John had all been there before. They cast the net where he tells them to and suddenly it's full to bursting. So they struggle back to shore to find that he's already cooked them a barbecue breakfast, fish and bread. Another lovely human touch for the risen Lord. But notice he also asks them to bring some of the fish they just caught. And I think this is a picture of the way that he wants to feed us spiritually day by day. Yes, he'll provide us with a healthy breakfast. And please notice it is breakfast, not any other meal. First meal of the day. All we have to do is sit down and eat it. But he actually wants us to have more than that. The point where this simple meal becomes a belly-bursting banquet is as the disciples add some of the giant, super-fresh fish they just caught by obeying him. John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Movement, was sometimes criticised for the simplicity of his preaching. Where's the meat? People would say to him. It's a good evangelical question. Where's the meat? And he was replied, the meat is on the street. In John 4.34, Jesus says much the same thing. My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. I believe we are most properly spiritually fed, not when we learn something from the scriptures, but when we put it into practice, and when we bring that experience back to our devotional times with God. Point six, mature believers show their love for Jesus by serving others, verses 15 to 17. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Well, this is actually quite a dense passage and there's much more to say about it. But for today's purposes, I just want to point out one thing from it. And that is the correct outflow of our love for Jesus. Now, people often say, I love Jesus, it's just the Christians I can't stand. And at one level, you can kind of relate to that. In fact, I guess that Jesus and Peter wouldn't be having this little chat if Peter didn't feel something of the same. Three times, Jesus says to him, what I believe he would say to us, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. As John points out in his first letter, 1 John 4, 8, if we don't love each other, then we don't know God, because God is love. There's no getting away from this vital principle. If we love Jesus, we show it first and foremost not by the way we worship or anything else, but by looking after one another. Point seven, mature believers pay the price. 
verses 18 and 19. Still talking to Peter, Jesus continues, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. When you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show about what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, since this comes so hard on the heels of, do you love me, then feed my sheep, I think it's best to see it as an extension of the same principle. It might be okay for the young believer, but for the mature, life is no longer about pleasing ourselves. Peter had to learn first to express his love for Jesus by serving others. But for him, living for Jesus would lead eventually to actual physical martyrdom. And this little section finishes with a simple command, follow me. And in the event, Peter did end up following Jesus all the way to a cross. Many in different parts of the world are paying that same supreme price for their faith to this day. Unless things change radically, few of us here will ever be asked to do the same. But many of us, I think, on the road to maturity, if we did but listen to Jesus, might well hear him calling us to give more than we're giving right now, to pay a higher price than we do for following him. Eighth and last, mature believers aren't distracted by what anyone else is doing. Verses 20 to 22. Yes, it's all about following Jesus, but that's not quite the end of the conversation, is it? Here we need to remember, I think, that in this gospel, the author styles himself the disciple Jesus loved. I think it might well be, human nature being what it is, that others felt that John was particularly favoured by Jesus. But whether or not they thought so, John himself clearly did. And it looks as if this dynamic might be playing into the little scene that follows. Peter's just been told some uncomfortable truths about his own life and future. And suddenly becomes aware, oh, hang on, there's someone following. And he looks around. Verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Dot, dot, dot. 21. When Peter saw him, he said, Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus says to him, if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Life generally just seems to favor some people more than it does others. And for the Christian, it's hard to avoid thinking that our God does the same. Some of us, the happy few, always seem to come up smelling of roses, whatever happens. Seem to get the great blessing, the power and the glory and the cushy number. And the rest of us just have to muddle through as best we can. And if you've never noticed that, perhaps you're one of the favorite few. I vividly remember Gerald Coates once saying, people are always telling me God doesn't have any favorites. And I always reply, you only think that because you're not one of them. <laughs> now, I think what he was really getting at in his rather abrasive way was that each one of us, if we learn to get really close to Jesus, will feel like his favorite. Be that as it may, Peter is not feeling very special at this point. I suspect it was not without a note of bitterness in verse 21 that Peter says, and this is from the Toby paraphrase version, and what about golden boy here? What are you going to ask of him? But Jesus won't tell him the answer. And he won't tell us either. When he starts getting tough with us on our road to maturity, 
It can be tempting to look around and say, you don't seem to be asking this of anybody else. But his answer will always be the same. What's that to you? You just follow me. Anyone who's watched the Six Nations competition this year, yay, will have noticed how often tries were scored when a defender allowed an overlap because he didn't trust his inside man to make the tackle. Did you notice that? Am I the only one who watched the Six Nations? Come on. Come on, guys. Watch some rugby. It's so important for your spiritual betterment. (laughs) If you don't trust the inside guy to make the tackle, you go to make the tackle, then the winger scores, right? Okay, that, that was happened again and again and again in this competition. The point is that we play better and our team does better when everyone just concentrates on doing their own job and doesn't worry whether other people are going to do theirs. So when Jesus starts getting tough with you, and he will, we shouldn't worry what anyone else is doing. We should take it for the privilege it is and get on with following him. Mature believers pay a higher price than others for following Jesus. They show their love for Jesus simply by feeding his sheep. They themselves are fed not only on what Jesus gives them, but on their own obedience to him. They expect and see signs and wonders. They consciously, earnestly seek the peace of Jesus and his Holy Spirit. They take time and they make sacrifices to become intimate friends with him. They respond to difficulties not by questioning Jesus, but by allowing him to question them. So are you a mature believer yet? I'm certainly not. At least not most of the time. But I'm learning. And I'm committed to go on learning. And here in these last chapters of John, I believe we have some clear signposts on the way to maturity. The way we're walking together. Why don't you stand and I'll pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your death, resurrection, ascension on our behalf. We thank you that you have entered into the Holy of Holies and you are there an anchor for us. And all we have to do is hold on. Lord, we want to be those who hold on. We want to be those who walk this way of maturity with you. We want to be those who who stick close to you, who are close enough behind you on the road that the dust of your feet uh, mires us from head to foot. We want to be those who pay the price. Those who follow you even though it leads to the cross. So we seek your Holy Spirit. We pray that you will breathe on us right now. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. Breath of God, breathe on us. Breathe life where there's death. Breathe health and wholeness where there's sickness. Breathe comfort where there's pain. Breathe wisdom where there's folly and error. Soundness of mind in Jesus' name. Shalom in Jesus' name.
Peace be with you. I think the first thing I'd, I'd like to call you to come forward for prayer for is simply peace. The peace that the world cannot give. The Lord's wanting to impart that today. I think there are some here who are sick. I think there are some who, who sense the beginnings of healing already, either in uh, an aching joint or muscle, uh, and it's already just feeling better just while the service has been happening. And I think the Lord will complete that healing for you if you come forward. Um, what else is going on? 